0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In his State of the State Address, Governor David Ige outlined what is driving his priorities in his final year. The state may have a billion dollars more for programs this session. We talked to House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke about what the governor left unsaid. And we also learned about what's become a little gold mine as we look for ways to fund improvements to our parks and manage our natural resources. Luke was sympathetic to challenges the governor faced during the pandemic and his goals in his final term in office.
1: I thought it was really good that he concentrated on some of the things that we were already working on. So pre-COVID, when before we shut down, the House, Senate, and the governor had agreed to make a commitment to allow for all three- and four-year-olds the access to early education. So this year, he reiterated that promise again, and it's something that we passed in 2020, in spite of COVID. He didn't really specify how he was going to do that, but through legislation, I am planning to introduce bills to fund pathway or immersion preschools and additional funding for preschool and child care build-out. So that's one portion. The other exciting thing, which everybody, almost everybody believes is now critical, is broadband expansion. Broadband is not something that people really discussed or wasn't really top of mind prior to COVID, but when COVID hit and everything went through virtual, whether it was legislative, legislative hearing or even to go to a doctor's office, it turned to virtual meetings and Zoom meetings and even virtual workplaces. I think everybody became aware how fragile our broadband capacity was. And I don't think if people know, but in 2000, I think it was 2000. Or 2019, Hawaii had their broadband cable cut. So for one day, they were without broadband. And can you imagine not being able to access your phone or Facebook or Instagram or browse on the internet for a whole day? And that tells everyone how fragile our broadband capacity and system is. So one of the things that the governor said was that he will be investing $400 million for broadband capacity, which is really exciting.
0: So it's no longer a nice-to-have, it's a need-to-have.
1: I think broadband is has now become a necessity. It's almost a utility.
0: What else were you struck by? I mean, he is calling for a, a, a rebate for taxpayers?
1: Yeah, so the rebate for taxpayers, I think that
0: is um,
1: is definitely something that we will take a look at. The House is already considering providing tax relief for our working class. That's why we're thinking of increasing the food credit, making the EITC permanent and refundable, which will hit a lot more working families. We are not sure if the $100 for every individual pencils out or makes sense. We may want to scale it. In the past, what we have done is provide greater funding for people on the lower income scale and scale it down. But we we have to just see how that works out.
0: And he didn't really specifically mention minimum wage. Correct.
1: That's one thing that was missing, especially since the public members are already talking about it and both House and the Senate leadership have talked about minimum wage, but minimum wage was not something that was covered in his speech. The other thing that wasn't really covered was as far as the the educational system goes, what specific things is he willing to do to close that learning gap, right? Especially during COVID when kids stayed home and there was learning loss. How do we make up that learning loss?
0: You know, he did talk about investing in uh, our healthcare and our schools to produce more doctors and nurses. That's really
1: important. And the program that he discussed, which is to encourage primary care doctors to stay here, work here with something that uh, even he recognized that we started a few years ago, and it's very successful on the Big Island, and we want to expand that program statewide. The other thing is the state lab needs a lot of help because I think we can all agree that COVID-19 will not be the last disease that we'll see. There might be additional type of variants or different type of SARS, or we also saw H1N1 and other type of flu. So I it is a good idea for us to ramp up and provide more assistance to the state lab.
0: And, you know, uh, he did talk about, uh, you know, the technology piece. Uh, we saw what happened with our systems when they were just Uh, inundated with the unemployment claims. You know, now our Department of Health software is just, you know, can't handle the thousands of new cases. Uh, You know, we're we're kind of in a world of hurt when we can't even, you know, report out data because our systems just can't handle.
1: Just in the last 10 years, we invested a lot in improving our technology and the infrastructure. Uh, I think it behooves all of us To take a look at the status of all those projects and then look where we can improve further. So for instance there's so many things if we have an integrated system we can do so many things you know tracking health of kids uh, whether it's at the DHS level or DOE level and providing wraparound services. I think there's so many opportunities for us to take advantage of IT even as we get more money from the federal government whether it's broadband or whether it's to sync up the traffic lights in anticipation of us getting autonomous vehicles i think there's vision and there's wisdom in investing in it system and it upgrades that work with the private sector
0: and you know one big thing is obviously tourism Uh, You know, we're looking at different ways to be able to generate more revenues. You know, the other night I heard you talk about how much money that we were uh, getting in fees just for the Diamond Head monument.
1: Prior to COVID, about a million people visited Diamond Head. And that generated, uh, prior to COVID, the entry fee was about a dollar and parking fee was five dollars. And even with that, we had record number of tourists visit Diamond Head Park even before COVID hit. So when COVID hit, we had a time to reevaluate and Department of Land and Natural Resources was already thinking about adjusting the fees. I'm happy to report that the entry fee is now, you know, it went from dollar to $5. And then the parking fee went from $5 to $10. And just in 2021, which we didn't even hit the million tourist mark, they doubled, at least doubled, or could have tripled the amount of revenues collected. And that money, which now is close to $3 million as opposed to a million dollars just several years ago, can be reinvested right back into parks and help in the maintenance and cleanup and provide a much Better visitor experience for everyone who visit,
0: and there are you know plans uh, to better manage the monument there. You know they had issues with the homeless. You know they're talking about you know a tram system to improve efficiency uh, and safety, but there also is a need to set up a reservation system, and I know they have been looking at that. When we look at what happened at the Hyena Park, they
1: converted to a reservation system. You can only access it through reservation and shuttle, you don't have the number of cars parked on the side of the road and clogging up the road. So it is really a terrific system that we are trying to replicate throughout the state because that could also be replicated at Koke or Ya Valley on Maui and other parks. I think it's fitting that Department of Land and Natural Resources that's overseeing parks is requesting a large amount of fund ceiling request. So what this means is they're anticipating that with the new revenue collected from these parks envisioning, they could potentially be looking at about $12 million in new revenues. And that is very good because then we can turn around and invest that $12 million right back into the park.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are I guess, best practices to be learned, whether it's the National Park Service at Haleakalā or the city in Honoma Bay. We just have to be a lot smarter, I guess, and more efficient in how we are collecting fees and how we manage the volume of visitors.
1: While we do all these management, I think it provides additional opportunities for us to have respite days. I think everyone can reflect back in the last two years how nice certain beaches turned out to be and how blue the ocean waters were and how you had greeneries come back. I think going back to even Native Hawaiian natural practices, there should be respite days. So there's reservation systems and limited entry will allow every parks and natural areas to regenerate and revitalize.
0: Anything else you want to add just as we start the session and, you know, you're you're looking for revenues, you're looking for different ways to be uh, innovative to deal with the problems that this pandemic has uh, spotlighted? Some of the problems that we have been talking about are old. So we're talking about
1: early education we're talking about tourism management we're talking about homeless issues affordable housing I think this session allows us because of the increased amount of revenues the opportunity to move on some of these big issues I think when you watch the governor's speech it was really heartwarming at the end of the speech he got very emotional and that's the side of David that people have not seen and I think because of that, people look at him as an individual who was very aloof or who was very engineer-driven and analytical. But that was that was something that I think it moved a lot of people because towards the end, he said, and I am proud to be your governor, and he kind of teared up and got choked up. And I think that shows you that he tried his best and he... Reflecting, right? You know, this is his last state of the state after eight years, and he's reflecting and he's talking about how difficult it was, but he was proud to serve in that position. So I thought that was very heartwarming.
0: And, you know, he has come under a lot of criticism for maybe not moving fast enough to respond to businesses' concern, you know, with this pandemic. And then, you know, as we see this Omicron surge, some folks felt he ought to have moved faster and you know to help reduce the spread but you know it is tough when when you're in that spot.
1: It is and anywhere whether it was within the state or within the counties or nationally or even internationally it was a a struggle it wasn't just a struggle and no one really had the right answer or the right way you know we all had to adapt and figure out what to do together. But this really showed the resilience of the community as well. Unlike many of the other states, even when the mask mandate was eliminated, a lot of people still walked around with their masks because they cared about their health. They cared about each other's health. And I think that talks about the resilience and uh, basically the aloha of the people in Hawaii. And when we look back, Several years or decades from now t- to this day, to the last two years, I think people will look and be in awe and be in wonder how we were able to pull together and live through the last two years.
0: That was House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke talking to us about the Governor's State of the State Address and how we have the opportunity to tackle long standing problems facing our state and the need to get it right this time. Yeah,
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about membership programs at honolulumuseum.org join dash give.
3: Seditious conspiracy. The Justice Department has levied the charge on 11 people associated with the January 6th Capitol attack there is this plan that we're not sure exactly what actually happened with about bringing guns across the river by boat which seemed a little bit out there i'm Meghna Chakrabarti. we'll learn more on the next on point
4: beginning this afternoon at 2 following the world
2: Support for HPR comes from CCIM and IRAM Hawaii chapters, hosting the virtual annual real estate market forecast this Friday, themed Which Way is Up? Registration by tomorrow at CCIMHawaii.org.
0: You are listening to the conversation here on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now we turn to our backyard quiz. <laughs> In today's backyard, we're visiting the local farmer's market in search of a popular edible closely related to the tomatillo. Often sold with its lantern-shaped husk still on, fans of this fruit know to pop them out and eat them raw or incorporate them into their favorite dessert recipes. The berries have a smooth waxy orange skin and are also a favorite of jam makers due to the fruit's natural uh, pectin. Indigenous to South America, it was first reported on the Big Island in 1825. Depending on your geographic location, this perennial goes by different uh, names. And In South Africa, it's called a Cape goose. Berry. In Madagascar, the poke pok. And in the U.S., Peruvian cherry or golden berry. It's both common in the wild and cultivated for home and commercial use. So do you know what locals call this fruit in Hawaii? You've probably had it on toast or maybe in a pie. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
2: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nereid Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing, NereidHawaii.com.
0: A Grocery store on wheels. That is the goal of FarmLink Hawaii, an online platform that customers can use to purchase local produce and other goods. The company started in 2015 with the goal to connect farmers to consumers. When the pandemic hit, they took a more direct approach to that mission, instituting a home delivery model for FarmLink customers. And in just the past few months, they've expanded both their free delivery options and their online stock to include local meat. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with FarmLink Hawaii CEO Claire Sullivan about the company's growth and the remaining obstacles on the path to a local food system here in Hawaii.
5: At the outset, FarmLink was really dedicated to local producers on the farming side. And since then, we've expanded to include locally made products. So in the beginning, it would have been all produce all the time. And now you can find things like eggs and bread and tofu and noodles that are made locally. So it's a more complete local grocery experience than it was at the beginning. And I want to talk about
6: local in terms of each of these products, because We're fortunate in Hawaii in that we can grow a wide variety of fruits and vegetables across the islands in the different climates that we have. But when it comes to products that are meat-based or dairy-based, it becomes more complicated in terms of the resources we have here. One of our local dairies, Meadow Gold, had some controversy at the end of last year because they were importing some of their milk from California. We've also had difficulty maintaining local meat production because of the limited number of slaughterhouses. How are you working with farmers to combat these particular challenges and overcome them to ensure that the products people are getting are local?
5: So I'm going to focus on local meat production. The dairies are a whole nother beast, really challenging without um, immediate solutions apparent. There's really going to need to be concerted investment in the dairy industry in order for it to succeed and uh, really be reinvigorated. In the local meat program or the local meat scene though, we really see that there's a lot of activity. There are flourishing producers already and folks who are ready to grow, willing to scale um, if and when they have the opportunity to do so. This is one of the reasons that we created the local, the new local meat program at Farm <laughs> which is an in-house program through which we're really committed to offering a consistent supply of a wide variety of species and a big selection of cuts. That's very different than what you would find in the, in the marketplace in general in Hawaii right now, where it's hard to find that consistent supply of a variety of species, particularly outside of farmers markets. So one of the ways that our program is distinguished and will, I think, help to build up that supply over time is that we're making whole animal commitments. So think of snout to tail or feet to wings. It's the whole animal. And this is really important because it helps a producer move all of their product, not just the middle cuts that are really popular with restaurants and other other customers. We also have built up our capacity by having a butcher in-house with the addition of the very talented Bob McGee, which means we're going to be able to do value-added products like smoked meat and sausages. And again, this is helping us to use the whole animal to make those commitments so that producers are economically viable and can, and can succeed. In fact, we really underestimated the demand from local customers we just launched about a week ago. And the demand is voracious, which is a really good sign. It's not a surprise. We do know that folks really want access to great local product, but often have been stymied in getting their hands on it. So as it's becoming more and more available, we see that producers have the opportunity to lean into that market and for us to be growing together. It is going to be a challenge. We're going to have to be really partnering closely to grow in tandem so that that demand and supply are both pulling each other up consistently over time.
6: And looking at that home delivery model, when you were thinking of including or expanding to include more options with more perishable goods like meat, how did that factor into your delivery methods?
5: Okay, so with the addition of additional perishable items like meat and eggs. We're careful to use refrigerated delivery vehicles, ice packs in with those perishables so that we can maintain proper temperatures and high quality all the way to the doorstep. I do want
6: to step back a little and and look at kind of Farmlane's overall goals in making local food more convenient for people. And I know that This has been something that has been integral to FarmLink's mission since the beginning and is something that we've also struggled with throughout the islands in ensuring people have access to local food. There's a wealth of food that we can grow, but that doesn't always mean that people are getting it. So can you talk a little bit about food deserts and how FarmLink has proactively tried to increase access to its products to a variety of customers?
5: At present, access to good local food or even just good healthy food is really inequitably distributed across our communities. And this has been integral to FarmLink's mission from the outset. And just plainly stated, our goal is to become a driving force to to transform local food production into a thriving industry. But not only that, it's also to make good local food accessible to all of Ways people. And that access piece is really central to the model of delivering to folks homes we know right now that brick and mortar establishments don't serve communities equally across our communities and the delivery model is basically a way of leapfrogging the need to make those significant brick and mortar investments in communities and just ensure immediate access to good local food for everybody one of the primary mechanisms for doing this is to accept SNAP and ABT in our transactions. This is the Federal Nutrition Assistance Program. It's also coupled with the DEBUX program, which doubles the purchasing power f- for folks who are using SNAP when they buy local produce. Um, and this is really important for improving and increasing purchasing power for good, healthy food, which is often more expensive than a calorie-dense meal that would meet a family's basic needs, but not those more complex nutritional needs that we all want to meet for our families. So, we were accepting the Snappy BT and the Bucks at two of our pickup locations, one in Kalihi and one on the North Shore. And then this past November, we were really excited to be able to expand upon that and launch the, the acceptance of Snappy BT payment on home deliveries. Uh, and we've seen that the demand is incredible for good local food by communities across the island. And in fact, our SNAP EBT sales more than doubled in just a single month as soon as we were able to offer that for the home delivery. And this is just like the tip of the iceberg. We know that this demand is really substantial. Once the word is out and once folks really believe that their communities are going to be served uh, by a free, free home delivery of excellent local groceries, then we think this is going to continue to increase, particularly as we're working with local community organizations as partners to share the word and to engage families um, in this opportunity. So if you're using SNAP-EBT to purchase your groceries, uh, you can go to the FarmLink online marketplace, put in your purchase, set it up for delivery as soon as the next day. And then at the moment of the delivery to your home, you would have a transaction with that EBT card with the driver. And this means that you're able to engage in that transaction wherever you live and with the convenience of the home delivery four days a week. This is really different than having to go to a particular location or a farmer's market. It just is really expanding the convenience and the access to the online marketplace and all the excellent local product that's there, no matter where you live and when you're shopping. This is is a big breakthrough, right? Being able to do the deliveries to folks at their homes, wherever they live, so that that access is equitable, that they can use their snap EBT, take advantage of the bucks. This is a huge breakthrough. I think this spells the end of food deserts, and that sounds a little hyperbolic, but it could do, right, if we're working together to, pull, to, to, to continue growing our supplies so that we have enough local food for folks. Now there's a mechanism by which they can access that food. And really this has been enabled by our in-house tech tech innovations, which have been driven by Robert Recker, who's the founder of Farmlink. And I think this is part of the secret sauce is combining a mission and a commitment to supporting local food system, along with more sophisticated technology to break down those barriers to access. Uh, To me, this is is why I joined Farmlink. This is the excitement and um, just incredible opportunity To be expanding that equity of access, along with partnering with producers to increase their production, which is contributing to an overall flourishing and resilient community that we all want to be part of, that we all want to live in.
6: On that note of resiliency, something that we've been seeing throughout the pandemic in our traditional grocery stores is an unavailability of certain goods just because of slowdowns in the supply chain. Do you feel that this model working within the community for most of both your product but also your distribution allows you to be more resilient as we continue to see issues in our supply chain bringing in goods to the islands?
5: So I'm a Freakonomics nerd. I love listening, listening to Freakonomics on public radio. And there was an interesting piece a few months back about the shift in mentality in supply chain management that is, we're, we're sort of on the cusp of it, a transition from the just in time mentality that's been really dominant in, in our governance of supply chains to a just in case mentality. And this really resonated for me because here we are in a very geographically isolated community where our vulnerabilities to supply chain interruptions are fully exacerbated just by virtue of our location. So if this is starting to permeate elsewhere in the world, we should really be paying attention here in Hawaii, and we should be building up our capacity to meet our own needs and to take care of each other. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we had so much conversation around economic diversification and Those who've been in the local producer community have been engaged in that for decades. The increasing awareness gives us all an opportunity to double down and say, this really is the focus. We must, as a community, contribute to our capacity to meet our needs for ourselves and support the economic vitality of our neighbors. And the beautiful thing about buying local groceries is you get to do all of those things at once. This does not mean that we are totally free of the vagaries of the international supply chain. Uh, We work with a lot of local suppliers who are having trouble getting access to their packaging right now. You know, we still are, I think, quite intertwined in the global system, but by continuing to bolster the capacity of our local production and then build up the ancillary businesses for packaging and ingredients, um, we're starting to improve upon our resilience, to grow it, and at the same time, meet our needs in the moment um, and improve that economic diversification. So it's just such a win-win-win on all fronts um, that it's really uh, a pleasure and, and in some ways feels like an obligation to be part of building that up as a company, as a business, and also as a local consumer.
0: That was FarmLink Hawaii CEO Claire Sullivan. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about expanding our local food system, which segues into our reality check today, which has gone to the sheep. (laughs) Honolulu Civil Beats editor Chad Blair joins us with an update on a fledging industry. Good morning, Chad.
7: Hi, Catherine. Nice segue. Very smooth transition. (laughs) And yeah, this is Thomas Heaton's story. I'm covering for him today. He's on deadline for another story. But you've spoken to Thomas before, and he's been working on our Hawaii Grown series, which we've been running for some time now. But yes, as Claire, uh, who's an old friend, was saying earlier, uh, you know, we all have this goal of self-sufficiency, greater local food production. Well, what about sheep? So Thomas visited a few farms around the state, and the people that he spoke with say it could be, sheep could be an integral part of of the livestock industry here in the islands. They're small enough for the smaller farms. There are many of them throughout the state. Uh, They mostly eat grass, that's not a, a difficult thing to provide, and you can get a couple of products out of them, wool, milk, cheese. Meat, so this is a very interesting look. Well, would, the sheep could be, yeah, a promising industry for us.
0: Yeah, when I first came across sheep, it was because they were brought in to uh, uh, basically uh, eat the grass under the solar uh, uh, farms, those large utility farms. And uh, I just thought, wow, you know, if we're using it, why? And you know, a lot of that was on ag land, why don't we develop an industry?
7: Right, and that's a good point because they are sheep are mostly used for weed control uh, in in various parts around the state you mentioned the solar panel lands yeah you can't have weeds and grass growing up and covering the solar panels from Thomas's research, I didn't know this, but if you go back to the late 19th century um, the farm, population for sheeps was over uh, sheep was over 100,000 100,000 animals today it's it's much more around 26 27 28,000 so a significant drop but remember that cattle uh, the cattle industry here in Hawaii is the third most valuable agricultural commodity after the seed crops industry and, and mac nuts macadamia nuts so there is a, a market for uh, for for certainly for cattle, for beef, we'll see whether the sheep can, can help supplement that industry. There's obstacles, though, uh, to making this happen. Thomas talks about that as well.
0: Now, uh, I was intrigued because uh, he got to visit with the state representative Richard Cregan, uh, who I didn't know was raising sheep over there on the Big Island. Yeah.
7: Yeah, and neither did I. I've, I've actually been on his farm and and and, uh, and did not know. He's got a couple, at least a couple of acres there. He'll, he'll probably call me and correct me on the, the acreage size here <laughs> if he's listening to this report. But but Richard Cregan did, in infel- fact, help him a lot with, with his story, Thomas. Uh, Cregan, also the former chair of the Agricultural Committee in the House. But I mentioned those obstacles. Uh, parasites are a concern. They're quite prevalent. There's always been a problem with having enough slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the islands to to process that meat. That is a, a big challenge as well. Um but there's other benefits that Thomas talks about, and that is that you could help reduce greenhouse gases if you were, if you were farming more sheep, and that's because you would be doing that through reduced tilling of the land. So other benefits as well. Um, having said that, right now goat meat I think is actually more desirable locally than than sheep, uh, but that could change uh, if people could find it. Uh, Productive and economic, economical to produce.
0: Well, I like lamb, <laughs> and I'm just thinking—you know—the the restaurants, you know, could highlight—you know—locally produced lamb.
7: Right. I think he mentions uh, one farmer sells to Merrimans uh, and that that could be really appealing. I, I hate to say it as well. I like lamb. I had <laughs> Greek the other day. And it was lamb. I'm pretty sure that was in there. Uh, but uh, very promising to think that we could. You know, it's still a very small amount agriculture in terms of the overall Uh, GDP of the state. But um, again, to that main point, can we become more self-sufficient? Can we produce more of our food locally? Uh, We certainly don't want to have to send it to mainland slaughterhouses, but we do have to do that in some cases. So there's a lot to be overcome, uh, particularly the slaughterhouse um, deficiency, if you will, in the state, but it's a promising possibility economically.
0: Yeah, I know we always see uh, those uh, folks down there at the Capitol every year uh, you know, trying to get bills passed to to make a, a mobile slaughterhouse happen, but we'll have to see how that works this year.
7: Exactly. We'll be. Report- I'm sure Thomas will be reporting back on that too, Catherine.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad.
7: Anytime. Take care.
0: That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Read Thomas Heaton's story online at civilbeat.org. Earlier in the show, we asked you to tell us what locals call Faisalas Peruviana, this South uh, American native. Has established itself locally since it was first uh, sighted on the Big Island in 1825. In the wild, the orange colored berry thrives on open mountain slopes at elevations between 1,500 and 4,000 feet. Its fruit decreases in size with decreasing elevation. The mature fruit has a waxy orange skin that's encased in a tan, papery sack. The fruit is easily popped out of its husk and can be eaten straight off the bush or used in cooked dishes and desserts. A favorite in Hawaiian provincial cuisine, its flavor has been described as a mixture of pineapple and strawberry. And the next time you go to your local farmer's market, look for this tangy berry under the Hawaiian moniker Poha. Its high pectin content makes it a good preservative and jam product that can be used as a dessert topping. And congrats to our winner today, Malian from Honoka'a. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honua Ola Bioenergy, committed to helping reduce Hawaii's use of fossil fuels, providing renewable energy to Hawaii Island 24-7 using locally grown and harvested biomass. This is Jason Taglianetti, host
3: of Applause in a Small Room. In the past eight years, we've enjoyed great live performances from local and visiting artists in just about every genre. January 30th will be my last show here at HPR, and we'll listen to our most memorable performances, some you've heard and some you haven't. That's a special episode of Applause in a Small Room this Sunday at 4 p.m. here on HPR
2: One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Theatre Center, presenting humorist, author, and comedian Paula Poundstone, 7 p.m. Sunday, May 22nd. Tickets available at hawaiitheater.com.
0: Nearly 30% of Hawaii's youth use e-cigarettes, according to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and nearly 10% smoke traditional cigarettes. To give the public an idea of the toll that smoking takes on our kids, the Coalition for a Tobacco-Free Hawaii Youth Council is trying to collect 21,000 pairs of new slippers statewide this month. The council says each pair represents a Hawaii kik'i alive today who will ultimately die from smoking unless current smoking rates decline. To so get a snapshot of what's being done to steer youth away from tobacco products, the Conversations Russell Subbiano sat down with Scott Stensrud, the statewide youth coordinator for Hawaii Public Health Institute, and Josh Ching, a senior at Kamehameha Schools Kapalama and member of the council.
8: In 2015, we became the first state to raise the age of sale on tobacco products to 21. What has your organization seen in recent years in terms of tobacco use amongst Hawaii's youth?
4: Well, since Tobacco 21, we have seen uh, an overall decline in youth tobacco use uh, when we're looking at combustible tobacco. So at the same time, combustible tobacco use has, has really reached historic lows We've simultaneously seen a very quick uptick in the use of electronic cigarettes. And that's, that's, you know, a big concern because the nicotine levels in the electronic cigarettes is actually much, much higher than in, you know, combustible cigarettes. So the youth are, are, are being subject to much higher levels than they, than they probably realize. And Josh... You're part of the Youth Council,
8: and I imagine you're closer to the current outlook of young people. How do they view tobacco? How do they view e-cigarettes in the world that we live in with all the things going on with the pandemic? What's your thought on who of our youth is using and why? Why?
3: I think for a lot of youth today, there's a lot of misconceptions going out about e-cigarettes and what's within them. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that it's like just water vapor, when in reality it contains a number of different chemicals like nicotine, formaldehyde, addictive chemicals that have helped to hook an entire generation of youth, my generation, through e-cigarettes in particular. I think one thing that has happened over the past several years, and that has been happening throughout I guess the lifetime of the tobacco industry is the targeting of youth through marketing, through media. Alongside that, the targeting of disproportionately been marginalized groups like Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, Filipinos, African Americans, who have been the subject of this targeting, which has led to disproportionate use rates among those demographics.
8: Yeah, I hear you, man. I remember when I was a kid, going to the store and getting the cigarette packet of gum was like the cool thing to do. And there was flour in there. So if you blew out the cigarette, you know, like this puff of flour would puff out. And that was that was the cool thing to have. Scott, I talked to a recovering addict, a recovering drug addict on Kauai last year. He says that when kids don't have an outlet to process trauma, they keep it bottled up. And when they go looking for a way to feel good, it puts them in a position to be open to things like drugs, like alcohol, like tobacco and e-cigarettes. What are some of the causes of tobacco use in youth that your organization has targeted and what kinds of programs or services does it offer to help?
4: Well, I think your interview you had with that other individual, he's absolutely right. You know, some of these youth are are looking for escape. They're looking for things that are going to make them feel better, not realizing that in the case of tobacco, be it in the form of combustible cigarettes or e-cigarettes, that the nicotine actually has the opposite impact. It doesn't help with stress. It actually makes stress and anxiety higher then, you know, and then if they weren't choosing that. So it it builds upon, you know, mental health issues, other addiction issues. And what we try to do is as an organization, particularly with the Youth Council, is to have, you know, peer-to-peer education. There's one thing for you know adults to come in and, and tell you this is dangerous, you shouldn't do it. It's another thing to educate youth about the dangers of, of tobacco, about nicotine in particular, so that they can share it. They're in the schools all the time. So if we can educate a cohort of youth on these dangers, they can educate their peers. So that's really been, been our approach. Is trying to you know get students like Josh and, and others, and we have students on all the different you know neighbor islands as well. To, to be kind of uh, an expert in their own community and share, you know, and share the facts. The other thing that we we work on with the youth is advocacy. So we try to provide information to the youth and then let them decide as part of our youth council what policies that they think are going to have the biggest impact on preventing youth from, from starting uh, the use of tobacco products and helping those that want to quit.
8: A visual display was unveiled at Windward Mall this month to raise awareness of tobacco's toll on Hawaii keiki. As part of the display, the Coalition for a Tobacco-Free Hawaii Youth Council is collecting 21,000 pairs of new slippers. Can you talk about the display and
3: why you're collecting the slippers? Yeah, so the slipper display at Windward Mall is a way to show physically how 21,000 Hawaii youth alive today will ultimately die from a tobacco-related illness if smoking rates don't change. So it's a way for us to really materialize this statistic that can often go like just over someone's head, showing people that, you know, 21,000 kids today are going to die if we don't curb the, the rates of smoking um, that are going on in our society today. I think in a way it, it shows how now more than ever, we should be prioritizing the health and safety of, of people, of our keiki, over boosting the coffers of an industry that's profiting off of addiction.
4: Yeah, I think when working, and we've gotten some questions like, why why slippers? What, what's the significance of slippers? And really that came about with working with the youth and talking with the youth about something to represent as Josh said the the, the kids that are um, you know that are ultimately going to die how do we represent 21,000 it talked about you know planting flags out on a lawn you know somewhere or other things but it came down to you know youth are also concerned about sustainability well how do we create a display that then can ultimately do some good after we're finished. So the slipper idea came up Is that was something that, you know, people kind of associate with, with kids, right? Uh, wearing slippers, we could collect those and then turn around at the end and donate them back to, you know, houseless, other at-risk youth so that we weren't creating more waste as part of this awareness effort, uh, you know, so much of the the swag and things that get handed out just get thrown out, right? Uh, just you know, it creates uh, other other problems. So you know, the youth are pretty yakamai on these things, and and they they thought, hey, yeah, we don't want to bring awareness to one problem and create you know another. And you see the pictures of the display, we would have to fill up that whole. Display 13 feet by 10 feet deep by eight feet tall to get to 21,000 slippers. You know, we know we're not going to get to 21,000 mm-hmm. slippers. It was to just show the people, as Josh said, how big a number that is. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around it. The first time I saw that and I read about that, I thought it was a misprint. I'm like, oh, it can't be that, you know, can't be that high. But when you, you know, do the math, 1,400 people a year in Hawaii die from tobacco-related illness. So you work that backwards, and it comes up to 21,000 youth alive today. You know, will ultimately die from a tobacco-related illness. And how is it that we're not doing more? You know, since passing the Tobacco 21, as you mentioned earlier, how is it that we haven't done more and taken any additional steps?
8: Yeah, it's pretty mind blowing. Even I thought, am I seeing this right? When I saw the press release, I'm like, man, 21,000. That's a lot more than I would have thought. Josh, earlier I was talking about this Wallet Hub study. It was published this month. According to their study, Hawaii has the 45th highest cost of smoking in the country. Their numbers were $170,000 out-of-pocket costs over the course of a lifetime. 1.7 million financial opportunity costs over the course of a lifetime that's money that was spent on cigarettes that could have been invested somewhere else. And 187,000 in total healthcare costs, or like extra healthcare costs over the course of the lifetime of of a smoker. And I, I just, I wonder if those numbers, if those numbers mean anything to kids your age, if that was something that you presented to them, is that something that they would process and could potentially deter them or are, are these numbers just numbers?
3: You know, I think so. I think that showing how much money will be invested if you get addicted to tobacco is something that a lot of kids will probably process because they have to buy tobacco, of course, in order to get access to it. And I think what it goes to show more than anything is, is how much here in Hawaii, the tobacco industry has been successful in trying to hook an entire generation of, of kids and also of adults In order to just boost their profits, which is also why the the Youth Council has been working to increase regulation on the tobacco industry, trying to ban the sale of flavored tobacco products to find ways that we can draw down this number and inevitably find a way that we can have a tobacco-free generation. And we don't have to worry about these staggering statistics, thousands of dollars being poured into the tobacco industry instead of the health and safety of our youth. Well said. Scott.
8: What kind of legislation is in the works this year to end the sale of flavored tobacco products and regulate e-cigarettes?
4: The Youth Council has been working on this for a number of years now. We've gotten very close every year, but in the end, it's it's not passed. So it continues to be relatively the same. We're looking, as Josh said, to try to end the sale of all flavored tobacco products. We know that flavors hook kids. It's what attracts them to tobacco products. And we know that when most flavors were eliminated from combustible tobacco use, numbers started to dramatically go down so you know it, there's no reason to believe that the same thing wouldn't happen with e-cigarettes in fact there's many more flavors of e-cigarettes than there ever was for combustible you know tobacco so some fifteen thousand plus flavors that are out there on the market most of it clearly aimed at kids when you have Flavors like Mauna, Dew, you know, Pog, they're also obviously attacking and, and targeting our, our Hawaii youth. So that's that's a big one. And this includes menthol. So oftentimes, you know, they want to carve out menthol. I mean, menthol is, is the original flavor. It's, you know, mint, peppermint. Think of those. It's a candy flavor. It makes... Tobacco easier to inhale and inhale more deeply and studies show it makes it harder for people to even to quit when they decide, you know, that they want to quit. And most smokers and most e-cigarette users want to quit. The other aspect is providing parity between e-cigarettes and other tobacco products. They're the only ones that are that are not taxed like other tobacco products. We allow them to be sold online. You can't buy combustible cigarettes online. Why are we allowing e-cigarettes to be uh, sold online? And to accomplish those things, we need to be able to license, you know, the uh, people that are sellers to make sure that, you know, there is a mechanism in place to be able to see who's actually selling these products and make sure that they are you know, tax the same as, as other products. You know, why are we giving them a free ride on, you know, on, on these issues? And the hope is that some of those funds would be used for more youth prevention activities and to help those that have already succumbed and are, are addicted to these deadly products. Josh.
8: What would you say to those who believe that this current generation of youth is very self-centered and is going to do what, whatever they want to do, even if flavored tobacco products become illegal, even if using these products puts their health and lives at risk? What would you say to, to somebody who thinks that?
3: I think the first thing I'd say is that it's a little pessimistic and a little cynical. From my experience, what I've seen with all of the other youth advocates that I've been working with, not only in the Youth Council, but across the state, across the nation, youth in our generation are recognizing all of the problems that we're facing and that we're going to face for years to come whether it's environmental whether it's social justice whether it's public health and i firmly believe that people my age people younger than me everyone who will follow are going to recognize those problems and are mobilizing now to fix them and i truly believe that our generation will be the answer to some of our world's biggest problems
0: That was Josh Ching, a high school senior and member of the Coalition for a Tobacco-Free Hawaii Youth Council, and Scott Stensrud with the Hawaii Public Health Institute. They were talking with H. Paris' Russell SubiONO. and, you know, you can help the Youth Council achieve their goal of collecting slippers by January 30th if you can drop off pairs of new slippers at the Windward Mall Center court display. Slippers will then be donated to houseless and other at-risk youth. And we are all PAL for now. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Maui Mayor Mike Victorino as the county tries to manage the COVID case counts and hospitalizations there. Got a story idea for us? Call our TalkBack line, 808 792 8217. Email us at TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.